Well, some officer would make the mistake of thinking that they're going to think less of me because I'm not, I, I messed up. When reality is, is that when you, you know, you mess up and you keep, you know, and you eventually succeed, what you've achieved is implicit connection of bonds. Yes. Huge as far as fire ground success. So Firehouse Vigilance presents the Weekly Scrap, a podcast dedicated to the never-ending fight against complacency. Corley Moore, Firehouse Vigilance, Weekly Scrap, number 54. Today, we have Deputy Chief Mike Walker has worked within the Oklahoma City Fire Department for the last, since 1990. Currently the Deputy Chief of Operations. He has, the, he has the degree to back up the years of experience. He is a lead facilitator for the Oklahoma State University Executive Fire Officer Program. The past he has worn hats such as Task Force Leader, Battalion Officer, Technical Rescue Officer, Hazmat Team Officer, Training Officer. Chief Walker has been an instructor for 25 years and has presented at multiple national events including the Fireman's Standard, which is one of my all-time favorite uh, keynote speeches. I make my new guys watch it. And so, most importantly, he is a fellow warrior scholar. Chief, it is my pleasure to have you as the guest on Weekly Scrap number 54. Good evening. <laughs> That's it? Good evening? I worked hard <laughs> on that. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, is, uh, to everyone watching live, which Dave LeBlanc says we are live, so I'm hoping we're still live. I'm, it's looking like it's acting funky. I'm hoping we're not. Anyway, let me know, Dave. Uh, to everyone watching live, if you have questions for Chief or myself, please don't hesitate to send them in the comments. And did I miss anything, Chief? Or are we good to I go? I don't think so. All right. Then with all of that being said, me and uh, Chief have been talking about, and uh, he got to speak on this at the, at the Mid-America Fools Fire Conference 2020, the Organic Design for Command and Control, which was written by uh, John Boyd in 1987. And so, Chief, I'm going to let you take off with it because you know a lot more about it than I do. Well, it was an interesting, uh, you know, I was getting ready to talk at the that Fool's Conference this last week. And what I was intending to talk about was the, how uh, the OODA loop and basically try to make it some figurative thing on how we can apply it. Because what they were wanting me to do is, you know, at the end of the day, uh, give an uplifting talk to, to everybody in the audience and, you know, send them out ready for the hands-on training stuff. But as I, as I was looking at the OODA loop and I'm like, who, you know, who invented it uh, or who came up with it, who popularized it? And it was Colonel John Boyd from uh, United States Air Force. Well, as I get looking at it, man, it started taking me down all these different paths about who Boyd was and uh, totally wrecked what I was originally going to talk about with the group because I, I realized that there was a whole lot more to this guy or even more to the OODA loop than what, uh, you know, I was um, – you know, had, had uh, previously even taught about and to re- understand who John Boyd was, you know, just kind of as a background to let the audience know, you know, why I'm geeking out. My, my wife's accusing me of having a man crush on him, but right. I don't even care. Um, you know, he was, he gets into the U uh, S air force, even before it's the air force uh, toward, and then uh, works his way up. First, he's a mechanic. Then he ends up being a lifeguard as he gets it, where he can go to college, gets his degree in economics, for, if all things. Uh, but then he's able to start uh, to become a fighter pilot. And it was towards the end of the Korean War before he actually uh, was able to fly. And um, so he was never a point man. He never had a combat kill. And uh, But afterwards, he was, he was, his 
he was such a good pilot that they invited him to be a student at what was called the Fighter Weapons School. He was the top of his class. They asked him to be an instructor. And then so from this, he becomes what many would consider the best fighter pilot of the day. Uh, he uh, earned a, a nickname called 42nd Boyd, and he had a bet uh, with anybody that he could he could outmaneuver them in a dogfight within 40 seconds or less. And he would let them start on his six, and within 40 seconds he would reverse position and uh, go guns on them and bring them down, and he, and he never lost. Never now, lost, yeah. That's the never part. Lo- yeah. yeah. And so uh, it, basically what he was doing with uh, – and it was – first it was the F-86, and then they you know went to the F-100, which they called the Hun. And it was this really uh, cantankerous airplane to fly. But Boyd was able to make it do things that other people wouldn't do, or he was willing to push the plane in ways that others others wouldn't. Well, as a result of all of this stuff, he starts, he develops what was called the, um, uh, I'm trying to find the, the name of it. He wrote uh, the manual in the fighter tactics manual. Uh, oh, aerial, aerial attack study is what he wrote. And um, it was so revolutionary what he wrote that uh, it eventually was used by air forces and, you know, fighter pilots all over the planet. Now, the, the point that I brought up in the, the speech the other day is whenever he started working on that, he was a lieutenant. And, uh, you know, and he, he, he faced all kinds of opposition because people said, you know, you don't even have a kill in combat. Who are you to, to, to do all this? But he still wrote it. He still went through the, you know, um, the hard knocks. And I, and I, and I want to be careful to not to paint Boyd in this uh, angelic light. Right. You know, he was basically so egotistical and so sure of himself. He didn't basically care what anybody else thought because he knew what he was writing. And so the, the first point uh, that, that I brought up was, you know, don't wait. Uh, Boyd ended up giving a speech to anybody who came to work from him. He says, you know, you can either uh, be somebody or you can do something. No, oh, I love that. And in fact, uh, the, just to cool. interrupt you, that's the whole reason I named this uh, scrap do something. So anyway, go ahead. Yeah. And, and so, the Marine Corps ended up adopting a lot of what he, what his later works. And basically they would say to be or to do, uh, or at least those that I've, I've read, I don't know how prolific it was within the Marine Corps, but at least those that I've, that I've read that uh, uh, cite Boyd's work. Uh, so, you know, what my message is to the, the, the firefighters out there, there's a lot of them that are waiting for whatever reason they're, you know, they're not part of FDNY. They're not part of a large metropolitan department. They, they haven't made the rank. Um, you know, they may even have, uh, you know, not the best reputation within their own organization. And for whatever reason, they're letting them that hold them back right. uh, from doing something. And that's a mistake. You know, if you if if you're on to something and you know that what you're what you're wanting to do. And in our case, it's a pretty simple equation is, you know, if you're going to make things better for the citizens out there, you know, you need to start advocating. If you think you can teach, start teaching. Um, you know, and Corley, you probably had the same uh, experience at some point whenever you were making the decision of whether you were going to start doing podcasts, if you were going to start doing writing, you had that same, you know, who am I to do this? Absolutely. It, right. Mm-hmm. And so you just said, well, I'm, I got to try, you know, uh, Ray McCormick has told a lot of guys, you know why you never been published kid? Because you never read anything. <laughs> All right. I love yeah. that. Well, you know, he's right. So you start writing stuff. And, you know, you had uh, uh, Dave LeBlanc on, um, you know, a, a little while back. And I met Dave back when he was writing his blog. Uh, 
And, you know, I had, he had no idea who I was. I had no idea who he was. Um, but he was somebody, um, Dave, I think is a great example of somebody. He wasn't worried about being somebody. He was going to do something and right. his motives were right. And as a result of that, it resonated and it allowed, uh, you know, cause there's a lot of, of, of Coralie Moores and Dave LeBlanc's, uh, you know, Court Smith and Justin Lorenzen and all these people that are out there that are, are you know, they realize there's a risk with stepping out. Uh, but to them, it would be even a greater risk to not step out. So I thought that was a cool point when I when I realized whenever the timing of whenever Boyd started publishing this his works. And so he then after he left Nellis, he gets assigned to um, the Pentagon. And this is back whenever computers were, you know, very rare. And anybody in the Pentagon, there was a computer, uh, you know, one single computer in the Pentagon. And people had to schedule time to use the computer. Right. So he had come up with this mathematical theory called what he, that he called EM, uh, the Energy Maneuverability Theory. And he couldn't get the Pentagon to let him put in his equations to test them. So he got with this other guy's last name was Christie. They did this end around to get this, um, you know, this theorem in, and it ended up proving to be true. And as a result of it, every single fighter plane since that time has been based off uh, EM. Now, again, he was not an engineer. Right. He had an engineering degree by that point, but he wasn't, you know, a full fledged engineer. I, th- I don't even know if he if he got to finish his degree all at one point, or they called him back to um, the the Pentagon. But um, the F-15, the F-16, the F-A-18 were all uh, planes that they had him help design. And he'd never designed a plane. He, you know, that's not what his background was. Right, but the, not an engineer but at his all. Truth, his truth was there. Uh, and so, and he even uh, had a large part. His theory was used for the A-10 Warthog. And so planes that are still in service today, right. if you think about when he did it. Now, here's it's an interesting thing. And I also want to point this out to the audience because I know if people who are listening to the scrap are are maybe sometimes wondering if it's worth it. Um, you know, here's what the reward they gave Boyd. They tried to court martial him. You know, there's your answer. Yeah, yeah. He uh, they accused him of stealing the 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 computer time. But here's how Boyd countered that was that he knew he knew his stuff better than they knew theirs. And what he would say is, you know, you just got to do your homework. And it's the same thing with, Ooh, you nice. know, th- these um, these young officers out there who are trying to change the trend or trying to change the culture in their department. You've got to know your stuff. Right on. Right? Once you know your stuff, trust it, you know, and train and train to a point where you start raising uh, the bar within your own department. And there's going to be people who are are going to try to criticize you for it. And they're going to not even try to criticize you you can guarantee they're going to try to sabotage what you're trying to do. There've been times over uh, my career, whenever we were bringing some, uh, some new programs on that, man, it got tough. You know, uh, we were, we were changing our high rise policy and we're switching to two and a half inch lines with a smoothbore nozzle. And man, you, you would think that me and the others that were working on it, that we were committing sacrilege, man, that we had, you know, slapped the Pope or something. Right on. it it they got pretty brutal at times, man. There were some there were some people that were you know gave us some cussings in some classes that got that that exciting at times. But 
what what stood us it wasn't so much our 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 faith in it it's just that we you know i i had uh you know we'd done our homework we knew what the nfpa standards are we had talked to you know dave mcgrail and all these guys who had been doing true high-rise work and we knew we were solid on the information and that's what boyd did whenever he was bringing about change you can't just even though he was this huge ego. I mean, uh, so reportedly had the worst table manners of anybody, you know, in the air force history, uh, you know, would, would, uh, wouldn't let the truth get in the way of a good story. Right. Type. On. Right. But when it came to the work, I mean, he was solid on, on what he, what he did. And so it made this huge difference. And as a result, the world has benefited by his work. Uh, and, you know, America, especially the United States uh, Air Force and Navy and Marines because of the airplanes that, that came out of a result of his work. No, and the ones you even mentioned, I'm not I'm far from an Air Force aficionado by any stretch of the imagination. But those had some long and storied careers. Every one of those ones that you mentioned, some of which are still flying missions to this right. day. You know, that's yeah. crazy to me. That, uh, so anyway, like I said. So if you think of. You know, the, the firefighters, again, you know, you're out there and you're trying to um, progress your department. Um, you know, there was there was a time not too long ago that we didn't have a Halligan Bar 1 in Oklahoma City. Uh, I cannot, you know, there was a group of dudes, and I wasn't part of this, but there was a group of dudes that uh, realized that our nozzles, we had the automatic fog nozzles. Mm-hmm. And, and they knew they were they were shit. They knew that you know we you know it was causing all kinds of problems. So they they you know got together and put together the study and proved that the automatic nozzles were actually putting out about sixty gallons a minute. Now I've since learned that every single place that we've gone and taught you know our our, uh, our classes to our engine tactics classes whenever we flow test their automatic nozzles, we keep seeing that number ranging around that sixty gpm. Uh, rate when they think they've got more, but when we actually flow test them on a cal- with a calibration thing, they're not getting near those flows. Right, they're not getting the GPMs they think they're flowing. Yeah, so it was you know it was uh, my fire chief now, Brian, Richard Kelly, Brian Arnold uh, was another guy, Richard Bell, uh, Jeff Renner. There were some other dudes that that pushed us doing this, and it was a, it was an amazing thing, Corley, that whenever we went we went with a uh, constant gallon inch nozzle after that. And we started, and we didn't track it, you know, keeping, you know, data. Everything's about data now. Well, we did a crap job of keeping track of that stuff back then. Only thing I know is uh, multi-alarm fire started going down. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, that's That's pretty good data right there. Oh, yeah. Uh, So, again, and so, and those guys caught grief uh, uh, for doing that. And um, so... After that, Boyd, you know, goes on and uh, when he retires from the Air Force, he basically turns into this pure academic and he um, he became basically what many would would say now. He's the greatest military strategist um, that America has ever produced. And even though I'd never I never knew that about him and I I don't know if many others would have too. But I mean, they rank him up with Sun Tzu, Napoleon and people like that. Um, and in fact, and I, I had to, I had to verify this with a different, a lot of different, uh, sources. It was his plan, uh, in desert storm. No, the whole left hook. That was John Boyd. You know, he's a, he retired as a Colonel from the air force 
And he writes the, the basically the, the military strategy that we used in Desert Storm that totally took the Iraqis. They didn't know which way was coming and going right. because he got inside their OODA loop. Inside their OODA loop. I was going to say, he got in there and right. started creating chaos. Right. And uh, so, and then the one other thing that he, here's a, um, and I'll quit ranting about Boyd. So sorry if I'm already boring the audience, but he, uh, because of his work, uh, um, he, you know, he's to continued to cause uh, dissension and basically turmoil in the Air Force because he kept getting inside the the, uh, the general's OODA loop and <laughs> messing them up. But there was there were a group of Marines that after Vietnam realized that uh, the Marine tactics that were used in Vietnam were outdated. They weren't working as effectively as they should have. So they're reaching out and trying to find these things, and they come across Boyd's work on uh, conflict uh, command and control, creation and destruction, and some other works that he, ri- he had written, and they realized that it could work. So this um, this instructor in the Marine Corps, I think the guy, he was either a major or a captain. He brings in Boyd, and he doesn't know Boyd. And, you know, he's trying to get Boyd to come in and give this lecture. And first says, hey, can you do it in two hours? And Boyd says, no, it's five hours. Right. You do it in two hours? No, it's five hours. No, really, I own two hours. Five hours, click. You know, and Boyd would do that to anybody. He, it didn't matter if it was generals. You know, his it was a five hour briefing. Anyway, so the guy bring him in, brought him in, and it totally changed how the Marines. It created this whole uprising within the Marine Corps, and supposedly there was a, a, a publish a publication called the Marine Gazette. I think I'm saying that right. If somebody, maybe somebody in the audience, can, uh, if I'm saying that wrong, please don't hesitate to correct me. I'll let you know if but, they do. Um, they they start writing this uh, and they start dubbing it maneuver warfare. And basically they're the ones it's became this grassroots thing. And I guess it caused all kinds of controversy within the Marine Corps as they're, as they're having to change what they are. Cause, and again, you think about it, the Marines are listening to an air force guy, right? What, you know, yeah. that's sacri- You know, again, they're committing sacrilege, right. you know, doesn't sound and, anything like a fire department at all. <laughs> right, right, and but they won because they were right. They 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 totally changed how uh, the Marine Corps uh, uh, approach warfare. And um, a very famous uh, military exercise, I think it was called Operational Millennium. Um, it was, was going to be the largest war game uh, in, in the history of the United States military, and it was a ramp up, I think, to Desert Storm. And um, so it was going to be everybody against them. They, then they had the red team, which was going to be the simulation of the enemy army. And they put a Marine general Van Ripper, who was, of course, which I think is an awesome name. I was getting ready to say that. That might be the best Marine name of all time. Best name, name of all time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so he's in charge of the red team. And he used, he went total anti-technology. He had guys on bicycles as couriers you know, and this very rudimentary thing. And he applied the, basically uh, the maneuver warfare, which is command by intent. Just make sure everybody knows what the goal is, right? There's the goal. Now go forth and accomplish the goal. And they, it, it wasn't very rigid as far as you'll do this by this time, this by this time, and this by this time. And um, they totally devastated the U S uh, <laughs> in, in like an hour. Oh, they wow. caused like 20,000 uh, simulated casualties and, and it just totally wrecked the whole exercise. And what it proved there in their 
their context is that being adaptive is what's is what's needed. And it's this is a a quote that the Marines said about um, about Boyd's work. That what they learned is that the key to survival and autonomy is the ability to adapt to change, not perfect adaptation to existing circumstances. Um, in which I know to some people they would say, well, duh. Uh, you know, so adapting the ability to rapidly change to conditions instead of perfect adaptation to the current situation. Current, so yeah, it's, the, the ability to adapt your change to the change almost is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so basically you do that and then you become the agent of, of change. And now you think about that in in uh, uh, within the fire service. What people will do is they try to make, make a perfect adaptation to the current situation. current situation. All right. So Boyd, that's what he would say. You can go and be somebody or you can do something. Right? You can go and you, you can uh, play the game, uh, you know, make the right friends. You know, everybody can say that you're the, the, the nice person, right? You know, you got a lot of get along uh, and, you know, and make, try to be, per- you can try to perfectly adapt to the current situation. Well, I can tell you if that is your formula, you're always going to end up being frustrated because there's the other side of the equation of people who are constantly trying to adapt and trying to make things better. They're already frustrated right. with the situation. So they're going to, so, and they will be an agent of change and cause things to progress and hopefully it's for the better. So. All right. So that's, I'm going to, I'm going to pause you cause I want to catch you up a on the audience and B I think it's okay. a perfect segue to going into the fire service. So besides uh, Dave LeBlanc, um, who says I am blessed to have met Mike that way when you, when you reference meeting him uh, true story, know as much as you can and then learn more. So he's adding on to, if you want to make a change, learn stuff, know your shit basically is what he's saying. And if you want to make a change, always have a plan B is what Dave says. You may not get all the change, but you may get some of the change then right. build, build on that. Uh, Jack Wilson did give us encouragement and said, Hey, this is very interesting stuff. So we're so far, at least for Jack, we're on the right track. Okay. And I yeah. want to, I want to say this is because when I was talking to chief Walker yesterday, uh, we were, we were just messaging back and forth and we were talking about Boyd's, uh, command and control and the, and the, and his stuff. And I said, Hey, let's just do a scrap based around this. And Mike was like, well, will the audience be bored? And I said, I'm the wrong guy to ask. Cause I think it's fascinating. So if you guys are in one other stuff, let me know. Hannah, of course, is Hannah. So she already has a question up here for us, but what I want to do is start discussing the command and control, the, the, the John Boyd stuff here. And yeah. then we'll get to Hannah's question. If we don't answer it while discussing it. Is okay. Fair? Is that fair? Uh, yes. Dave LeBlanc also said Boyd, the fighter pilot who changed the art of war. It's a great version of Boyd's story. I don't know if you've read that one or not. So since you're my current Boyd aficionado, I, uh, I, I read the one by Corum. I think he was the author of, of that, and it and it's this long. It's a huge book, uh, but there's I'm finding out that there's quite a few works. Gotcha. Uh, and people cite him all the time in academic works now. No, no, and and I'm probably a lot like where you were when you started. I'm just like seriously, this guy's a big deal. Obviously, you know. So I had no right. idea. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. So let's dive off into the. Uh, organic design for command and control or how, whatever, whatever, whatever direction you want to take this. And so, uh, I'm trying right. to, I'll qualify real quick before I let you loose, which is I analyzed it basically from a fire ground decision 
making standpoint. Like if I'm on the fire ground, not really from like culture or leadership or anything like that. Mine was more from a on the fire ground. And, and so before I let you loose, like I said, is one of my major takeaways was we're not up against a human element with its own agenda. We're up against a fire in a building. So anyway, I'll, I'll explain to me the difference and how I applied it as we discuss it. Okay. But yeah. Cause it, you know, that's it. Um, I think we're going to share with him because yeah, you had found on YouTube where there's actually a recording of Boyd giving this lecture. Right. And I think he's giving it to the Marine Corps and it's all the quality of the audio is horrible, mm-hmm. but if you'll really get in there and listen to it, you can hear not only what he has on the slide uh, or the overhead and that, that in his case, <laughs> time frame, yeah. uh, but his, his, um, his side comments uh, about it as well. So, what he starts off with saying in the uh, in the study was saying that, you know, when we talk about command and control, what it means to be in command and control, excuse me, but he says what we really need to strive to is leadership and appreciation. Right. Now, his context of what he's saying, appreciation is far, far different than our modern 2020 appreciation. Like, oh, I appreciate you. I think you're now, what a he's, great what person. He's about, <laughs> appreciating the situation for what it is and getting an honest assessment of it. But um, he says that, you know, a system has to have insight and vision because without insight and vision, there can be no orientation to deal with both the present and the future. So, um, you know, and, and he, you know, there's a lot of things that you'll hear about um, a commander's intent. Mm-hmm. So if I think about fireground operations you know, how do we make our, our system to where we have the right level of accountability to where we know where our, our personnel are working, but it's nimble enough and adaptable enough that our personnel feel like they have the freedom to address, as Wes Sitton said the other day, targets of opportunity yes. as well as the overall goal. Right. You know, and to be able to achieve both of those without compromising one or the other. Right, and you're juggling. Yeah, and because he because he says the other thing it needs is focus and direction because without that implied or explicit and it's a big deal to him implied or explicit there can neither be harmony of effort nor initiative for vigorous effort. I kind of dig you know the way when you read it it sounds a whole lot worse than whenever he says it. Yeah, and then it, obviously it has to be adaptable, uh, which implies variety and rapidity. Uh, without variety and rapidity, uh, one can never be can neither be unpredictable nor cope with the changing and unforeseen circumstances. Now, when he talks about being unpredictable, obviously he's talking about flanking a, a, a human enemy. Surprising the human enemy, right? Yeah. Uh, so I may not have put it on here, but you know, what we need is what is variety on the fire ground? Uh, you know, and there's a lot of different things to it. Like I think of the different tactical options, like when you're going to do a search, you know, as, as the incident commander, all right, I need to have enough trust for the people that I'm working with that whenever they decide if they're going to do an oriented search by going through the front door or if they re- recognize a target of opportunity and are going to do a vent inner search, I need to be able to rapidly understand that and be able to, to adjust what needs to be adjusted to support that because they're hitting our highest uh, you know, priority, priority, which is a life Your commander's intent. Right. Right. And, and, <clears throat> The same thing whenever we're, we're, we're talking about, um, um, you know, fire attack or ventilation or whatever that is, 
you know, there needs, and that's, that's the other thing what Boyd stressed is that is for the command system that he's was, was talking about is that the amount of implied trust, you know, is a, is a, is a key element. So when, what he's talking about different between implied or implicit versus explicit, if it's explicit, that means it's, it has to be explained. It can only go page by page because it, it's having to be explained where if it's implied, all right, um, it can move much faster. Absolutely. And, um, so that, so and I, that's where I almost, I almost put it to the, like the SOG book, having it in the cab of your engine versus just understanding the, yeah. does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, like step by step, if A, then B, then C versus the implicit. But, well, yes. Yeah. And that's the, that's the part. And it's a, uh, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. I, years ago, I was working on a way to try to teach guys you know, to take that step up from being the tactical officer to the strategic officer on the scene, the incident commander, if you will. Sure. And, um, and, and it dawned on me, you know, the fact that what you have to do is assimilate the patterns and, and Boyd does a much better job of explaining that because here's what you get into. Like if you start thinking of the things that you have to observe. All right. So for those of you who aren't aware of the OODA loop, it's, it's observe, orient, decide, and act. All right, but the way we orient is going to decide what, how we look at things, how we filter things, if you will, is going to make a difference on what we pay attention to. So, uh, as he would say, that's the the schwer punk. That's where the, the basically the focus of our energy should be is on how we orient and we view a situation. So that's huge when we start talking about size up. Yes, you know, uh, you know, you'll hear us preach about building construction. But Corley, I don't know if you face the same thing, but I do. I still have a lot of, of otherwise good officers that just don't get the significance of building construction. Well, it's, it's, it, yes, a hundred percent, because they come from different backgrounds than they used to. I mean, yeah, it's different now. I mean, it is. <clears throat> so for me, like, is taking that building construction, you know, whatever that is, uh, and uh, you know, for me, is you know, your smoke and fire conditions, you know, reading the smoke. Uh, I still, I still like Dave Dotson's, um, you know, formula of, of reading the smoke. I think it's still applicable. Absolutely. And then you take those, those two things, couple that with, you know, what you know about the rescue, you know, the rescue profile, you know, how many searchable spaces do you have? Can you identify? Can, yeah. Coupled with the fact that you hear from people that someone's trapped inside or whatever, you know, whether that's that, that tingling in the back of your neck, Hey, I think somebody's in there. Um, along with, you know, your other, your other, um, you know, your exposures, that was the things that I focused on was those four, because you had, didn't have time to think about too much, but here's, here's the, um, the implicit part. Sorry, I rambled. No, no, you're good. If you go to the point where it's implied and you've studied, you've done the requisite knowledge and have that information in there, whenever you recall it, it's no longer in that checklist. Basically, um, like Boyd would use, he would use parts of a bicycle to teach somebody how to, to make a snowmobile. Well, mine's a little bit simpler than that. Think about if I bring up the concept, you dog, all right, automatically your brain has opened up every single bit of information that you know about dogs, sure. your first dog, the dog you currently own, you know, all their habits and everything. And you don't have to go sort through this data. It's just immediately at your fingertips. That's what he's talking about with the implicit that if we do our homework beforehand and we know what's going on and there's also, and Corey, this, Corey, this is important for you and I as incident commanders from different jurisdictions that run in with each other. We have to have a shared vision of what we're seeing 
All right. So to have that implied trust and basically the shared experience. So whenever I look at a structure and say that's searchable, right, that I need whenever you're showing up, that you're already going, hey, that's searchable. Right. The harmony versus the friction. Yes. Yes. That's huge right there because friction slows us down. If we have miscommunication, if we're not trusting each other, we start missing opportunities, which, you know, just as well as I do. Those moments, the opportunities to exploit that are fleeting. Absolutely. You know, and so. And that's what Wes was touching on completely. Yes. Yes. So anyway, so there was a quote that he brings up in that study uh, from Napoleon that I thought was pretty cool. It said strategy is the art of making use of time and space. He says, I'm less cherry or he cares less about uh, uh, of the latter than the former space. We can recover time. Never, never. I may lose a battle, but I shall never lose a minute. The whole art of war consists of well, uh, well-reasoned uh, circumspent defense followed by rapid and audacious attack. Right. You know, I, I dig that one, man. That's one of the things I underlined. That's what I said. I may lose a battle, but I shall never lose a minute followed by a rapid and audacious attack. So right. it's funny just the, the, the thought process on that. Yeah. No, that's, um, that was one of my favorite quotes that he did. And then the other one for me was Clausewitz was, was uh, friction is the only concept that more or less corresponds to the factors that distinguish real war from war on paper. And that's where you talk about training versus the actual fire ground. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And he touches on that is you have to get, you have to try and understand that that friction is going to exist when the real deal happens. Right. And so if you think that, you know, that realistic training, and then whatever you've tested yourself, you've stressed yourself, and you found out what your capabilities are. And you do that in relation to the other people that you're going to be responding to. Right? That's how you're going to build that, that synchronicity, that harmony on the scene to where it comes together. Because we've all been there when you have those incidents where if I'm not having to explain everything to you and you're not having to explain everything to me, that we can just go to work. Right. Man, good things are more likely to happen. Absolutely. And, and, there's departments that are struggling to find that synchronicity just between their, their responding district, you know, let alone their department, let alone, you know, depending on the size of how far out it goes. Um, I know there's, so that, yeah, it not, not to mention what me and you were talking about, about, about mutual aid, you know, or automatic aid. Right. Uh, we're talking about just within their own departments, their own jurisdiction. Oh yeah. Two, two crews showing up and having that friction because they're not on the same page. Are you there? I lost you, Chief. I got no sound. Mess us up. No, you're back. Okay, sorry. All right. Yeah, daughter was trying to call me. Sorry. Oh, yeah, you're fair. Um, She's more important. So, <laughs> so another thing that he brought up in those quotes was uh, the one from Balk of uh, 1980. He says, emphasis upon the creation of implicit connection or bonds based on trust, not on mistrust, that permit wide freedom for subordinates to exercise imagination and initiative yet harmonize with intent of, of the superior commanders. The benefit is internal simplicity that permits rapid adaptability. Yeah. Now dude, that's the fire ground. Yeah. Commander's intent plus decentralized command time plus decisions acted upon all rolled into one. Right. Yeah. That if, if, you know, and, and this is, you know, if any of you all are chief officers, if you're not going out and training with your crews, you have to. How else are you going to know what they're capable of? 
um, you know, for, you know, I also think it's a mistake if you're the, if you're the company officer and you always place yourself in the role of evaluator so you can see how well your crew performs, you've got to be in the middle of that, um, you know, and, and it's, and it's all right if you, in fact, if you don't, if you're not making mistakes in training, you're not training hard enough. Hundred percent. We all know that. You can say that twice. Um, yeah, yeah. If we're if we're <laughs> not training hard enough, or we're making mistakes. We're not we're not trying hard enough in our training. We we just have to do that. Yes, sir. And um, and once we do that, then what the result is, and I think this is a where some some officers would make the mistake of thinking that they're going to think less of me because I'm not. I, I messed up when reality is, is that when you, you know, you mess up and you keep, you know, and you eventually succeed, what you've achieved is implicit connection of bonds. Yes. Huge as far as fire ground success. So, and, and yeah. that's not even counting the periphery. And I'm, this is me going off on a tangent here, just from a leadership perspective. It's not even counting the periphery of your guys seeing you fail and say, Hey guys, I effed this up, but, I effed it up. We learn from it. We go on. It's okay for you to do the same thing. Let's all learn together. You know, that's right. Which doesn't even connect to the first part, which is the, just the harmony of saying, this is how we overcome this. So anyway, right. sorry, that's huge. Um, so he was, there's the other, the other thing that boy gets talking about that. If we, if we focus on command and control that our tendency is to be too inwardly focused, all right, and any time that a system is too in, inwardly and fo- inwardly focused, it's going to collapse in on itself. Now, dude, there's a ton of of things that, from the fire ground to the fire service as a whole that when we start, you know, if we're not externally focused, so basically when he says when we're externally focused, then we're connecting with our environment, and we need as many people on the fire ground. Uh, you know, looking outward so they can connect with their environment, which is right. the fire ground. Right. So now, one of my huge notes, cause he said it in that tape, which was complacency. Cause I, yes. I'm, a, I'm a huge guy on complacency, but he says complacency cuts you off from observing, which means you can't see the environment that you are in. And I love that now, quote. Dude, I've been that dude. No, 100%. I've been where I've gotten, you know, the fire basically got in my OODA loop. We got behind you know, things weren't going well, and then it starts dominoing. If we think of the, the links of, of disaster, you know, what eventually happens is we get so we get so inwardly focused that we're not fighting the fire. You know, how many times have we gone to writ training where basically they're saying, hey, you guys quit fighting the fire. You know, we, we still got to fight the fire. We still got to put that out. Right. You know, can't stop and, there. But we, we, we have our own tendencies and our own situations that causes us to forget the, the overall situation. And we start looking at our own problem too much. And that can be, that can be deadly. Deadly. Very deadly. Uh, and so when I, I started thinking of what are, what are things that happen that causes us to become internally focused on the fire ground? Um, one of them was that, um, uh, and I run into this with new officers and this, it's not a, it's not a knock against them. We've all got to go through the process of, of learning. So we all have, have this phase, if you will, uh, that, but we're more worried about how we sound on the radio versus instead of effective communication. Sure. You know, uh, I've been there a hundred percent. I've been there. Yeah. I mean, we just got to understand, you know, like um, we may get totally okey-fied and hick and nobody outside of the fire ground will be able to understand what we're saying. Who cares? As long as the dude 
or the captain, the officer, the firefighter, on the other end understands what, right. what we're saying. The effective communication instead of just how we sound on the radio. The other one that, that stood out is like we're more, more worried about working our command system rather than leading the incident. Yes. And I think this could happen. This isn't a knock against any, you know, any of the, the way that people manage an incident. It can happen with any of your systems. Uh, but, you know, sometimes we're, we're so worried about, oh, I didn't assign a writ team or I didn't do this or I didn't do that. Instead of like going, manage your incident. No. All right. Make sure you're taking care of, you know, life safety, incident stabilization, property conservation. Are the searchable spaces being searched? Are you getting water on the fire? Uh, you know, I, I think, it, but there again, how do you get out of that? How do you get out of your own head? It's practice. hundred percent. And, and, and even like, like you just, you just touched on it. And Kurt Isaacson, this last on Friday, it's the first time I got to see him live, but he talked on it and he said, you know, if you're just checking a box, you know, like here's my checklist of things I have to do. And you're not looking at the incident. You can place a second do rig. You can place them at a hydrant. And place that hydrant as a higher priority than searching searchable space. That's exactly the th- that's exactly it. That's being internally focused right. instead of externally focused. All right, and you're being explicit because I got to check these boxes, these boxes instead of implicit and just dealing with your situation again. And the only way you're going to get to 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 that point is to master your craft, you know, and, and to know what you're talking about. The other, the other point I want, not just on the incident commanders, but on the crews that are executing the, the task and the tactical level, is that if we hes- hesitate taking a necessary action that could benefit a victim because we're afraid we're going to violate policy. Right. Or, you know, for in Oklahoma City for years, the dilemma our officers faced was, I mean, it was a hard, it was a hard rule. It was basically a thou shalt not um, commandment, you know, and you will bring in a supply line. And it was, man, it was a huge rule. And it was, a, and it put officers for years basically in an ethical dilemma. Right. I got 500 gallons of water. In some cases, I got 750 gallons of water uh, on here. I could go in and, you know, make a difference. And I'm going to lose this time catching the hydrant and having to slow my ingress because we're, we're, we're laying this line. So I was glad we were able to change that. Um, and we, and it, and it had all the things that we feared that if we quit, uh, forcing that first engine to lay a line hasn't happened. I haven't seen you it know. yet. That's good. That, that, have, yeah. We haven't run out of water. Right. You know, crews, the, the, the second engines they're, they're bringing in lines and they're, you know, we're, we're getting the water supplies established, but what we have seen are a lot of very fast knockdowns. Nice. Yeah. Nice. And, 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 and you guys have, uh, very massive rural areas that are, that are spaced out. Right. I mean, Oklahoma city is spread out. <laughs> right. 621 square miles. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's not, it's not a t- like more. We're blessed, man. We got hydrants everywhere and we are landlocked. And so our second do is going to be two minutes, three minutes out tops. But so anyway, uh, for that to be your, your findings for making that change is, is awesome to hear, especially considering the jurisdiction you cover. All right, real quick, coming in with um, Crew First Culture said, which is Jeremy Sanders, he said, I couldn't agree more officers and above have to get involved in training. We have to know the capabilities of our people and be the example that's not afraid to make mistakes. Plus, we need to be competent enough that we can be teachers as well. And, I mean, that, that's, that sums up very well. Uh, and then, of course, I don't know. 
Mentors are necessary. This is from Gigi Galasso. He said, mentors are necessary within our crew. Some will, and the beginners can teach the upper echelon something new. No, there's a hundred percent. You can learn from those new guys. I mean, do not be afraid to learn from their passion. Uh, well, you know, um, Garrett Rice from Col- the Colony, he shares the story that uh, it was a recruit uh, that came in and he's noticing this recruit is is bunking out at the beginning of every shift. And he's quick don, you know, he's putting on his, his SCBA and practicing his, his quick don technique. And Garrett hit him up and the guy just told him why. And Garrett, you know, but this, I think he's a captain at the time. And, and Garrett, if you listen, I'm sorry if I'm butchering your story. But, uh, he basically said, you know, that's the right thing to do. And so at that point, the younger guy, the newer guy demonstrated good leadership and the rest of the crew followed suit. Now, as a result, who wins? Mrs. Smith. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that, that crew's, they're not, uh, Mrs. Smith's not waiting for that crew. No, they're, they're ready to go. And, and, and ties right back into what you said at the beginning. You can be somebody, you can do something. The rookie did something right. and it goes right to Garrett Rice. He did something. He acknowledged it. And now the whole crew and who wins, like you said, meeting the need. I mean, it's just amazing. I mean, top to bottom. All right. Yep. Sorry. That was my interruption. Let me see if I got it. <laughs> Have we answered Hannah's question? I'm scrolling backwards, Hannah. Chief Walker, can you discuss the portions of the OODA loop that occur nearly instantaneously and how to train on that to increase speed and accuracy of decisions? All right. There's a... Um... As far as depending on how what you're applying it to. So for me, if I'm looking at it as if you're going to be the initial arriving officer on the scene, establishing command. And again, this is also going to depend on what your response model is. And how many other rigs, what's your supporting cast that's showing up on the scene? If you even have other additional resources showing up, sure. you may be it. Yeah. Um, but so uh, Boyd would say, that orientation is is what's super important is that that you need to basically what are you looking at and you're filtering that through other points of reference and for me uh building construction is big here's a drill that 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 i've done for for years and you can you can do this um get with uh your your group people your your fellow uh fire geeks out there Have, have them take pictures of buildings all right. And uh, make sure they're, you know, small, uh, single family dwellings, they're commercial structures. There's all these different styles of structure. And what you want to do is there's, there's, there's a conditioning aspect to what you can do. Put them on a slideshow right, in PowerPoint or, or keynote or whatever it is. And then put that presentation where it's going to change those slides every five seconds. So the picture comes up, you got five seconds, identify the, the construction type. Nice. And that's where you want to start, all right, and just, you know, uh, type one through five. And um, I had done this where I had about 100 buildings on there. And some of them, they're confusing. Some of them aren't clear cut of whether they're, uh, you know, what type of construction they are because sure. of, the, of the construction types. Right. But what I keep seeing over and over again is those students, after about 20 or 30 slides, it starts clicking. Even though they've – because um, there's different ways that we learn things. All right, and there's different la- uh, levels of learning, but once you apply that information in that respect, now you've started conditioning yourself to recognize that in the right context. So why this is important is whenever you show up on the scene, again, you want that uh, you want that knowledge of building construction to be implicit. Implicit, that's it. That's the key. 
you don't want to have to go through the wizard. It's this. I'm looking at that, and you know, I, you know, it's got uh, true masonry walls. I'm seeing the, you know, the arches over the windows. It looks like it was constructed in about the 1900s. No, you don't have time for that. You need to have all that requisite knowledge done. That whenever you re- you you know the building construction type actually takes a fraction of a second. Now then you do the same thing with smoke and fire conditions. Now where we're super blessed in our generation of firefighters is YouTube. You can watch a thousand structure fires. Now, again, go back, start with Dotson's work on the art of reading smoke and apply it. And then make sure that you're looking for thin, black and fast. You're looking for black and turbulent, you know, that, that, you know, that precursor for um, uh, flashover. Start looking for the fastest moving smoke from the smallest smallest opening and identifying that and then let that, you know, then try it out, you know, then let the video run out and say, oh, that's where the fire is. Again, you're just going to condition this. Now, at first, it's going to be slow, um, but it will start picking up and eventually it will become implicit. Right? You'll start recognizing things almost on a subconscious level. You're not having to consciously be aware, oh, that's thin black fast. That fire is right there behind right. that that window. It, it'll, it'll become something that becomes way more instinctive. And then that's those two aspects right there are going to drive your decisions and your actions. All right. Um, you know, some of it, if I, you know, uh, again, is going to be based off what your options are. Like if you're like, if you were primarily going to be looking at fire attack, um, you know, what, what are your options on your apparatus? Right. You know, and that's, that's huge. Right. Uh, no, absolutely. It, it, that's where it's hard because, because tactics are local and, and right. that's where it's hard. <clears throat> So that's that's what I've tried to impress uh, on people. Uh, rapid, you know, basically this is how you employ rapid prime decision making. Basically, that's going to help you run mental images. I will also encourage you to do this: practice your on scene reports. All right, by using the radio, and you need to say them out loud. You can't just voice it in your head. You need to do that actual practice, um, and I encourage. People, whenever they're they're stepping up, they're going to move it over to that right seat, and they're going to be the ones. Giving. You need to practice those often because you need to basically try to get as much information in that twenty seconds as you possibly can. Because there's, you know, there, you know, I don't know what's worse, either no communication or the person that just can't quite get to the point. The over communication, yeah, <laughs> the meandering communication. And I want to, I want to, I want to tack on to what you said because it's, I, I love everything you just said. And one thing I love at the end where you said you have to practice that communication out loud is take everything you said. If you make that, take that PowerPoint slide and especially, and this is a, a hot tip real quick, which is go to uh, Google and search for smoke showing and then hit images. And you can find tons of steel images, not to mention videos, because uh, if you look for structure fires, they're usually like heavily involved in flames everywhere. But if you look for smoke showing, uh, you'll find some great pictures. But anyway, build a slideshow out of those and then have one person in there with the radio and everybody else in the other room and communicate the on-scene report to them. And then when it's over, have them come in and look and then critique it and say, that's not what I saw at all. Or Right. Uh, and, and you will get so much better and so much faster. Uh, sorry, and, I wanted to tack on there. You- you also, I'm, I can't let you go past, but you mentioned this in your uh, your talk on Friday, is that once you've gone through those processes and it starts becoming implicit, how you build stress, like you said, get on the treadmill, get on the, the yes. stationary bike, get that heart rate up to where you start getting out of you know your comfort Com- level, yes. 
uh, or basically the, the oxygen starts, you're not getting as, you know, full oxygen to your brain because it's having to go to your muscles and then give them there. That's a way that you can stress, basically inoculate your, your brain to communicate because this is a very important thing why verbal communication is important. Um, sorry, I'm going to get geeky again. Bring it. You, you as, an, uh, as a fire officer are basically making your brain do something that very few people have to do. You're dealing with a very stressful situation. So that's activating a specific part of your brain. And some would refer to it as the limbic system. Right. Here we go. That's like fight it. or flight or flee. That is, uh, or freeze. That is, uh, you know, the things that you do that's emotional based. All right. A lot of it, you're, you know, because how do we deal with stress? How do we react to that? So that also, that's the part of your brain that makes very fast decisions, you know, fight or flight. No uh, thoughts. Right. So you're, you're, yeah, you're having to, your, your brain is going to go into that situation because, again, you are dealing with a situation that, you know, uh, your primitive brain recognizes as life-threatening. And so you're, you're conditioned to that. And that part of your brain is not connected to the language part of your brain. That is in the frontal cortex. So the, here's a, another why it's important that you give, that you condition yourself to give a decent on-scene report. You're going to force yourself, activate that frontal cortex of your brain, you, yeah. which is how you're going to process information better. I know it's really geeky and a lot no. of people think I'm shit with it, but it's the truth. But yeah. No, I'm going to, I'm going to pile on you here because I love this so much. And even Dave LeBlanc said, now we are talking Grossman, which, you know, it's a perfect, but here's the deal. I'm listening to on combat on audible for like the second read through right now. That's my driving around book right now. And, uh, I'm reading, I've actually finished reading deep survival. And at the same time, the book that I've been struggling to finish. And so it like, I creep through it is, is thinking fast and thinking slow. And, and it's weird because it's on accident that all three of these books are basically dealing with the same thing, which is system one and system two, you know, deep thinking versus reactionary. And uh, it goes right to what you say. Whenever you bump into a tree branch, you react to it. You don't think about it. You're set. You're right. The limbic is saying that's a snake. Get the get the hell out of the way. Right. And right. that's what we're trying to say is what you can condition to be processing when, when, when you're not able to say, what is this? Is that a snake? Oh, wait, I need to move, you know? Yeah. And so, and, and if you think that's why Klein, he, that's why he uh, went, you know, he went to soldiers uh, and, and firefighters yes. and he was, when he was developing the work on rapid prime decision-making and what he realized is that there were so many things that when he would go back and ask the officers is how did you know that that was, it was too hot to get out. The recollection of the officer didn't really make that right. much sense. Because it was implicit. It's on that subconscious level. It was just like it this added up and I needed to do I needed to take this action. No, and, and B and uh, with Klein, you know, and he was saying there was no B, C and D consciously. Right. It was this is this this is the thing I need to do. And because there is no time to make Yes. Uh, yeah, you don't have time for the you can't best engage system two and figure you, it out. You, you make right. your actions off the best decision that works in your brain. The first one that works in your brain, that's what you're going to do. So let me catch you up. Michael Snodgrass, aggressivefirefighter.com. The high level of thoughts and articulation of concepts in this scrap and several like it are what is driving the renaissance of fire service professionalism. Thank you with an exclamation point. Thank you, Mike. Hey. Uh, I, that's really, that's a high praise. So I appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, man. Um, Dave LeBlanc said, build in mental checkpoints. 
A FDNY deputy used to put his gloves in his coat sleeves. As he put on his coat, he would hit the gloves, and that was his reminder to take a pause. I actually like that. I dig it, man. See, there, here was something else that I've, um, what I've, you know, basically, and, and some people would disagree with this, and, it, and that's cool too, but I know for me is like I, I had to come up with basically my routine, kind of like what that deputy did, and I needed it to where if I got interrupted – I could come back to to the point that I needed to come back like to, you know, uh, if if necessary. Now, the the downside of that is, is again, could it have forced me to be too internally focused that I was more worried about how I sounded? Yes. So there again, you get to because um, the whole point. Here's the other part about the oodaloo, and this is where uh, another point that uh, uh, Boyd brought up is basically what you want is to be able to achieve uh, the term um, finger spitzenkaful. Yes. <laughs> right. Love it. Okay, go ahead. Basically, you're such an expert. You know what's going on that just from a light touch that it feels right. Everything is right. So like that, um, I'm sure you can come up with your own mental image of what that means to you. But to me, it resonated that um, what is, and it, the more people that we can get on the scene, that are, are achieving uh, that are at that level of finger spitzing full, obviously the better the scene is, is going to get, uh, you know, because you have people that just understands the flow, the rhythm that, you know, this is working right. And, you know, and I, if you think about <clears throat> the mental aspect of firefighting, if you start thinking about what does right look like, right. Um, I love chief Thompson's, um, uh, explanation on this on, you know, what, you know, we, we've done a poor job of defining to the fire service of what success, success looks like. Right. Uh, so what is that? Right. And, and so if we can get the, the more people that we can, that we have that understand, Oh, this is what a success is. The easier it's going to be to achieve that. So I'm not even going to try and pronounce finger spitzel snickel, but <laughs> uh, my interpretation from your take the other day is basically, and I'm going to Americanize this right here with Stanley and go with spider sense. You're trying to get to the point where there are no exclamation points coming off from your spider sense. Everything just oh, yeah. feels good. Right. So, anyway, that's yeah. my, that's my uh, interpretation of it with Peter Parker and Spider-Man in, in the, in the <laughs> driver's seat. So, all right, T, uh, Man, I'm not. We're at, we're at one hour right now, just and we are on pace. Oh, sorry, like, if I ramble, yeah. No, yeah. I I love I, like again. I'm the wrong guy to ask. I'll do this for like we could turn off the the stream and we'll still talk and go go for it. But yeah. I do want to keep it good for everybody here. And if you want to again, I'll have you back and we'll continue to discuss uh, Boyd and Oodle Loops and any questions anybody who's viewing yeah. has. But I want to ask you first and foremost. I always ask this: books you think that firefighters should read. Um, man, I really like, um, uh, the art of reading buildings. Yes. Uh, I think, uh, Brannigan's building construction to understand the traditional, uh, type one through five and the implications that go along with that. Uh, but then I also like, uh, Dodson's, uh, you know, the art of reading buildings. Um, I've, I've always appreciated John Norman's book, um, the fire officer's handbook of tactics. Yeah. Oh, I just got the new edition. I'm so, so pumped to go through it again. Um, I know some people have been critical because there's too many stories, but the reality is we learn from stories. Uh, so, um, 
I, I also am a huge fan of McGrail's uh, high rise book. Uh, that's basically the backbone of our high rise uh, policy is what Dave wrote uh, those years, and it's still applicable. We're, we we call it mid-rise because we're in more, and so we have mid-rise, but we are basing most of our mid-rise operations off that book. Right. Um, so as far as those tactics um, and, and thinking of the different types of, of, of fires, those are, excuse me, uh, of course, um, uh, there's a lot of the work that's out there now that is done in, in blogs or the, the training minutes and the videos that are right, out there. Right. Uh, you know, I watched one this morning um, and I think it was a, it was somebody that put it on Facebook and it was about the guy about protecting the seal on a, a been in her search. And I thought the guy did a really good job. It was a couple of minutes long right? and I thought really good information now. So those are the books that stand out in my mind right now. Um, Again, Dotson's uh, The Art of Reading Smoke. I think if you're going to be a company officer, you, you need to master that. Um, on, um, because, again, that's going to drive a lot of your, your decisions. Um, leadership books, um, I, I think that you, should, you should make it your habit to read at least two good leadership books a year. Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I like that. I like that as a checkpoint. I, I think, you, I think it, because – and this is where I would agree with Boyd is if you ever, you, you can never be satisfied uh, whenever it comes to, to, to uh, leadership. I, um, I love that on his tape when he was like, Hey, I don't care. This is the best thing we have now go out and call it shit and let's rip it apart. It is the right. best thing. Now let's rip it apart. Anyway. Right. Sorry. And, that, and that's what we need to do. So one of the first books, and I still think that it is good and it's, it's an older publication written by John Maxwell called the 21 irrefutable laws of leadership. Um, um, I think that that is a, an outstanding book to start whenever you start, you know, what does it mean to be a leader, someone, a person who's going to influence others? Um, it's your shit is another one. I love the Jocko books, um, you know, extreme ownership, the dichotomy of leadership. Um, <sighs> You're going for the there, record. Do what? You're going for the record. I don't know what uh, the, I don't know what the record is, but you're going for the record. Okay. No, it's fine. And that's not a that's not a critique. I I, I have yet uh, to disagree with you on a single book, so it's awesome. Um I'm trying to Wooten, uh the UCLA basketball coach, yes. uh his book on leadership. Um I love citing uh his book. Uh he is he is the opposite of Boyd. Right. He had uh, the pyramid Wooten. of success and and Right. Yeah, and it was yes. Uh, and one of the things that stood out to me, and I've, I've used this in a lot of talks with recruits over the years, is, you know, uh, it didn't matter. Uh, the first day of practice, uh, Wooden would spend about 20 minutes on how to put on your socks. Because, yeah, you know, he coached Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, right. some of the greatest basketball players, and, he, and, you know, he's, te- he's making sure they know how to put on their socks. And because it was about attention to detail. Uh, so I, I thought that was uh, – uh, an interesting one. Um, tribe of mentors. Um, that it, it's a different one because basically what this guy's done is he went out and basically asked the same questions to all these people who were leaders in their fields, oh, wow. and 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 they answered it. And so that one has a lot of good information. There's some of the there's some of the people that that responded to it. 
um, not so great, but there's some of them um, very impactful uh, stuff. And so there's, there's a, I tried, like I said, I try, I'm trying to read, um, I'm trying to always continually read a book on, on leadership. Uh, so I think you, you, you're going to have to do that. Cause if you look, if you look at all of the leaders, whether they're military, whether they're athletes, whether they're in a ministry, uh, or even within the fire service, the, one of the things that they had in common is that they were voracious students. They were constantly reading yes. and learning and whether that be on philosophy. And yes, I think, you know, you need to know your Plato, man, 100%. You, need to know, you know, those, those things and be able to, 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 to understand how that relates to our world. If you don't uh, you understand know, the cave and back to Plato, then, then you're, you're going to struggle understanding the culture of the fire service. Right. <clears throat> yeah. So, so um, way, anyway, I probably rambled too long on that. Sorry. No, no, we're uh, there. This is the crazy part. It's like, it's like, this is my bromate here talking about all these books and this philosophy <laughs> and, and Boyd and Ooda loops. Okay. I'm going to catch some more, uh, comments coming through the high low. Okay. I got that one. Got that one. All right. So Dave LeBlanc, of course, Dave LeBlanc has been Mr. On point here and he's talking about finger spitzel schnitzel. Um, <laughs> and he said, it's like the definition of pornography. I'll know it when I see it. And that's pretty good. That is a very firefighter way of putting it. That's, well said, my friend. Like at the kitchen yeah. table, they all understand what he means at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He called it the definition of success. Excellent discussions. That came from Martin C. Group. Thank you, sir. Uh, Michael Snodgrass chimed in once again. He said, one of the items I have gained from fire conference speakers and hot instructors were their checkpoints, trigger points. That cause them to act, react, pause, and or think. Our careers are not long enough to experience all of the mistakes ourselves. And that's huge. Learning from... Yeah, that, well said. Yes. Nice, Michael. Uh, Justin Marriott said, I love Brannigan's third. Currently reading Art of Reading Buildings. Uh, the Art of Reading Buildings, and I wanted to touch on that. Dotson's Art of Reading Buildings. If you look at it and, and if you tip it up on its edge, the one I have, it is festooned with little stickers that I stick in it. And it looks like a fiesta going on because I have got so much information out of it. Go ahead. Well, I know you, you cite this book a lot, but man, this one has been incredibly impactful for me over the last year and a half. And that is Chief Thompson's book. Oh, yes. Uh, Functional Fire Company. I'm I'm using that as as a backbone thing as far as directing and teaching our officers and giving them a copy of the book and we, you know, about our, our chosen culture. Dude, I belong to a cult when it comes to that chapter two. Uh, yeah. I, I, I really am a disciple at that point. You can put me in a monk robe and I will preach it to the masses. Yeah. That, that, um, that what he, what he's written, uh, I think will resonate for a long time as far as how to, how to build basically getting the fire to service, from being inwardly focused to outwardly focused Excellent. like we need to. And we, we focus inward as far as fixing it, but the whole point of it is so we provide better service. Mrs. Smith wins. Yeah, right. Yeah, 100%. Meet the need, however you want to say it, but yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, he was definitely ahead of his time and kicked out of firehouses for his innovative thoughts. I think they're talking about branding and steel. Uh, Martin C. Group said, Critical Decision Making, Point-to-Point Leadership in Fire and Emergency Services by Michael Barricay. I have to check that one out. I have not seen that one. Um, Chief Walker's statement on Friday, Be somebody or be something has stuck with me. Great statement. That was LJ Geist chiming in. I, there's a lot of comments here. I'm trying to catch you up, Chief, I promise. Uh, 
Tribe of Mentors is solid. That's a shame. Okay, they're talking about Brannigan. Uh, High Performance Habits. The Book of Andy, of course. G.G. Galasso. Brannigan's wasn't a structural fireman, firefighter in the Navy, but he knew buildings and saw improvements that could be made in the service. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, and William Seeley said Thompson's book is awesome, which brings us right to the present. So, awesome, Chief. How you doing? You still got energy left in you? Oh, yeah, man. Okay. Oh, yeah, I'm good. Because I have a thing we do. It's, it's called the uh, Five Questions for Firefighters. Do you feel like you're up to it? Yes, sir. I score it every time, and the points are completely arbitrary. <laughs> it's much like the uh, whose line is anyway. If you're I'm not it. even going to try to keep up with LeBlanc, though. That's, that dude's just too smooth. You cannot keep uh, – well, and, and the mustache. Oh, right. Of course, yeah. I was going to say, you talked about Garrett Rice and David LeBlanc in the same podcast, so who wins? Mustaches win. <laughs> yeah. All right. Are you ready, sir? Yes, sir. All right. Five questions for firefighters. According to Chief Mike Walker, what is the number one issue facing the modern fire service? Uh, I think we, the, the number one issue. All right. One, there's. can I answer it with two an- answers? Because on the fire ground and then within the, the fire service in general. You got it. Uh, I think on the on the fire ground, you know, there's the struggle that I know you have to talk about a lot is, you know, um, firefighter safety versus, um, you know, Mrs. Smith. And um, I, I, I think this is and this may be controversial. Your, your audience may take issue with this, but I've, I've gotten to the point where we say we, we keep using the word aggressive, aggressive or not aggressive. And what I wish what we would, you know, let's turn that on its head and say effective. What's effective? You know, our, we, we should be loyal to the best result. You know, it, whatever the hose load is, I, I don't care. You know, show me, tell me what's going to get the sufficient amount of water on the fire fastest. That's, that's what we should use. And I realize that could be uh, uh, jurisdictionally specific depending on your, on your structure. So I'm not going to say one hose load fit, fix it all. Right. Um, but that w- our loyalty should be to the best result, period. Um, you know, um, I, I know that the UL studies and the NIST studies, and they came out and caused all kinds of controversy. But there was also a shit ton of good information that came out of those. That is, whether we like to admit it or not, it is shaping, you know, it is it has raised Absolutely. our IQ as far as, especially when it comes to ventilation. Um, you know, when we talk about inward and outward flow, flow path, are you kidding me? Before those stuff flow, what flow, we didn't talk about flow path. That no. wasn't that wasn't a term we used. So it has shaped. Um, and I also think that the controversy that it's caused has been helpful. No, the conversations been, from the controversy. Yes. Yes. It, it has caused people again. What is the best result, and to be loyal to that. So that is. Um, I think we still struggle with what are we're loyal to. Uh, to is it to the best result or is it to our tradition is it to our our you know our our, our complacency whatever that is and now within the fire service as a whole i think we have to understand that um we're we're the last probably government agency that people trust um nice. we're, we're you know that that is our currency we live and die by it and so and we're we we're no longer we can no longer pretend that we get to hide behind the doors of the fire station. Um, you know, it is every single, you know, the way we treat each other, 
uh, you know, it's it's time for us to raise the game. Uh, that to be what what the the public needs us. I I, uh, I I took Scott Thompson. You know, you know, he was in his example where he went and asked the people, "Hey, what do you expect from your fire right. department?" Well, I called Chief Thompson. I said, "Hey, if you had to do that over again, what would you do different?" And he, t- you know, we came up with four questions. One is, "What do you expect your fire department?" But the second one is, "All right, you." Uh, or your loved one is trapped in a structure that is on fire. Uh, do you expect the fire department to come and rescue you, even if that meant that the firefighters would be injured? The third question is you ask the same thing, and would you expect them to save your property? Uh, and then the, the, uh, the fourth question is, is, you know, what are the top three things you expect your fire department to be good at? And then I also added, I said, characterize to me, what you would say is what do you expect of the firefighter themselves? And I give some character traits. Well, so I've, I've been asking this either in um, neighborhood associations or in one-on-one interviews. And it's, it's a not, it's not a surprising answer that whenever the public says, Hey, would you expect us to come and rescue you? Even if it meant we're going to get hurt. I bet everyone in your audience already knows what the answer, what, what they would say. Here's what's interesting or what's interesting to me is that they'll look and say, Hey, I, I don't want to hurt your feelings. And I don't want to say that you guys aren't important and that you don't matter to your families, but yeah, I expect you to come and save me. I expect you to come, um, you know, to do your best, but there's also to this, this level of trust that they have for us that we're going to do that. Right. It's to them. It's a difficult question to answer because to them, it's like going well, you're, that's like asking me, you know, should I breathe? Right. It's just it's, so it's implicit to them. Firefighters right. are going to come and save your life. We're, you're going to come and save me. Yes. <laughs> so the other part of it, as far as how we behave towards each other, we, we're, we've got we've we've got to raise our level of professionalism in a lot of areas. Nice. Hey, I can tell you or, this. This is how way I, longer of an answer than what you want. No, no, no. And that's that's the thing is how I score the question. I say it's arbitrary, and I say I score it like it matters. But the crazy part is, is I do in my head say. If they can make me interact with them in the answer because I can't help myself, then they win. And you got me like, you got me like three times where I was like going, mm, mm. So, that's on me. That was a great answer, man. I really did. So max points, of course. Let me pull up my notes here and get the question too. Uh, what is the thing you are most ex- – and the thing is I would love to see the results of that survey, man. Dude, that is amazing. Yeah. I want to know what they think on saving their property. You know, what is- uh, a lot of them, what they, they, they don't want the firefighter uh, to get hurt but they expect us to do our best to save their, sure. their property. And again, they don't really know what that looks like. Right. And they're, they're honest about it. And some of them, they don't realize that until they start answering the question. Like one guy said, you know, I don't really think about, I, you know, I've always thought of the fire department like I would a mechanic. I don't think of you until I need you. Right. And he said, and so as far as what you guys do, he said, I just trust that you guys know the best way of, of handling this. No, so to me, is that if it ever came out that we weren't doing our best, what a violation that would be. Oh, of their trust, 100%. Oh, yeah. Okay, sorry. Yeah. And again, max points because you got me to ask a follow-up. Uh, so number two, what is the thing you are most excited about for the future of firefighting? Um, one, I'm, I'm, I'm loving the fact that, that we're coming back around and, that, you know, as, as one of the the people who asked a question about the renaissance 
of putting the focus back on rescues. Um, you know, Brush was talking about uh, Friday about the way we report things. And so, um, you know, that we don't do a good job of, of, of documenting our successes. Well, um, JLo and the guys have been keeping track of this. They, they, they started putting an emphasis out on, hey, if we make a grab, if we make a rescue, we need to start tracking it. So they've been doing it. So here's our stats this year. All right. In Oklahoma City in this calendar year, we've had eight fatalities. But we've had 13 grabs, seven nice. of which left the scene with a pulse. That's what I'm excited about. Nice. No, the fact that document. Oh, see, you got me talking again. Go. No, no, go ahead, man. No, you're good. Let's go. That's uh, awesome. I, I just, you know, as uh, whenever I came on the job, we didn't make that many rescues. Um, we, we just, we weren't getting there fast enough. When we were getting there fast enough, again, we weren't, we didn't have enough uh, water coming out the nozzles to, to make a consistent impact. And, you know, uh, this is back in 1990 where we're dealing with, uh, they literally had it in the essential book, what they called a power cone, which is basically, uh, yeah, thir- yeah, basically a synonym for blister your ass, <laughs> you know, that you just go in there and you always had blistered ears. You remember you had your neck yes. was blistered, your wrists, wrists were blistered. You thought, hey, that's all we have to do. But God, think about what the result of that way. It's horrific to think about that. But because people are, are standing up and, and being loyal to the best result, you know, I can tell you that my guys were, are making these kind of graphs. And we're not unique. We're not, we're not the exception. This is going on all over the place. Yes, sir. That's what I'm excited about. That's awesome. Max points, two for two. Uh, got me to talk. Okay, number three, best rank position to be in in the fire service and you got a you got a wide swath to choose from here yeah man i enjoyed the company officer role Uh, i've had fun at all of them um but company officer uh you know there with with my crew we're training you know basically you have that you know we're going to make it when we show up on the scene that they're they're going to pull us out of staging in front of other people because by god we're just going to be we're going to be that good and, um, you know, you get that, that, um, that camaraderie, that teamwork, basically, uh, whenever that, uh, sheer, sheer punk, you know, we basically, I mean, we're hitting it on all eight cylinders. Uh, that was, that was a blast. I enjoyed district officer as well. Um, you know, but as you, as you, as you step up, you're basically, your leadership has to change, you know, um, uh, you know, basically, whenever you get to the level like where you're at, uh, Corley, you're you're leading leaders. Yes. All right. And so th- with that is sometimes that can be good, but sometimes you're dealing with more resistance uh, at that. So it's it's a little bit. I don't know. It just seemed like that was a lot of fond memories back from that rank. I do. Yeah. Again, uh, it's my bro mate because the company officer is the best position to be in the fire service. You take care of the guys that take care of the people. That's the company. Right. And when you move up one more, then you're taking care of the guys that take care of the guys that take care of the people. Right. Uh, yeah. hundred percent. Right. So three for three. All right. Number four, best advice you ever received. Um, never make a rule when you're mad. Um, which is especially at the company officer level. Um, the, it's kind of, it's been said so often that it's almost become cliche but uh, people don't care how much you know, they know how much you care, um, which is, 
is absolutely for for my personality style uh, is essential. Um, I'm I'm the classic red personality, which is result uh, based, which means if you have a, 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 a disaster and you need results, hey, I'm your guy. But if you need somebody who's who's really empathetic and, and checking on their crews, that's not my my first tendency. Sure. But you realize it's essential. You have to be that way. And it's still there. It's uh, it's not that I don't care about the people that I work with. No, I, I adore the people that I work with. Um, but I, I had to work on that. So it was good, good advice for me to hear. They don't care how much you know. They need to know that you care. When they know that you care, then they'll care about how much you know. Right. Uh, anyway. Yes, so, yeah. 100%. And the crazy part, you brought up red, so it's funny. It's Martyr introduced me, Chief Martyr introduced me to red, whites, blues, and I, yellows is yep. the one that hardly Yeah, the people code, right. yeah. And, and <laughs> I think you probably got it from your executive fire officer, to be honest, but uh, it's so fun to walk into a room and identify the reds. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, and then, and then, you know, I was, uh, whenever I learned it, I, I'm having all the people in my battalion do it. Sure. And it's like, like it's like, <laughs> you know, 95% red blues that are, that are out there and, and a few yellows, uh, that are wanting to have fun. But yeah, that those personality styles, that's it, a good thing to know too that. And I guess I would add, also add that to the book. Here's, Oh, here's two more books. I got to throw on the list. Go for it. Uh, Difficult conversations nice. and crucial conversations. I've not read crucial. <clears throat> Both of those books um, and why those are important is because as you as the, the company officer, the district officer, whatever else, you, you're going to have these conversations that are not easy to have. And those books not only are good at the, at the firehouse, they're good in life. You know, when you're dealing with, you know, a spouse, a child or whatever else, and it's basically how to st- how to keep the conversation healthy and productive, and it, some people would think it's hokey, but man, it works. And, and I, I honestly, just to bring it full circle, it's almost how to keep it explicit instead of implicit, and mm-hmm. and, and which keeps it effective and productive. Which you know we're going right, right back to OODA loops, but we're talking right. about dealing with our spouse. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> nice. All right, final question: Heavy fire and tenable space. Would you rather be assigned? To the nozzle or first in on VES. I want to make the grab, man. Fair. But if you put me in the engine, I want on the nozzle. <laughs> so you, you got dedicated trucks. Yes, okay. we do. Fair enough. Um, and and uh, I, I primarily rode uh, from driver all the way up. I was I was either on a truck or a rescue from that okay. point on. So, I yeah. always like to 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 give a knock on truckies and say, "Well, they eat the crayons." Oh yeah, yeah, we do. You know, have, and uh, again, uh, have you watched G Ron's training seconds? I have not. Okay, I'm going to have to introduce you to G Ron, man. This guy, uh, he, he's from Gary, Indiana, and he's one of the funniest dudes I have ever met in my life. Anyway, does he need his own uh, scrap or? Dude, I tell you what, if you got him on the the scrap, uh, it would be hard for you because you're going to laugh <laughs> the whole time. Okay. The whole time, the dude just funny. Anyway, uh, basically, he he's a trucky too. So basically, okay. you know, squirt, wiggle, 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 squirt, wiggle, wiggle, wiggle. That's yeah. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. I love it, Chief. It has been. Um, I don't know. I don't know what this scrap was because we have. <laughs> it was great. Well, I'm glad you and I enjoyed it. <laughs> I, I, I'm telling you right now. Uh, 
uh, someone said Mike Heaney. Mike Heaney's here. He said, shout out to G-Ron, my boy. Uh, I'm going to oh, catch yeah. you up one more time. Uh, let's see who else was here. Uh, Bill Carey always says, this is Dave LeBlanc talking to us. If you are changing your commitment to the public, you had better tell them. And that's that's Ooh, hard well to Bill Carey said it good there. Uh, Bearers yeah. of the Oath chimed in and said, spot on, chief. And they, they, they're answering your 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 five questions to firefighters, I'm pretty sure. And I wish I had a chief like you when I was a company officer on point. I'm going to claim that when he's talking about me. I'm just kidding. Uh, there you go. Yeah. Uh, yep. Scary part is, is Dave LeBlanc coming in, re- no, replying to Dave, said, yep, scary part is some departments change the mission and won't be until something happens that the public realizes it. And that is the scary part. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if Dave LeBlanc gets the MVP because he has linked like almost every book in here. If you guys want to find the books, Dave LeBlanc is on point. Oh, I'm telling you, that dude, that dude. He's amazing. He, yeah, the way he can cite stuff. I told. That's why you, you got to have a friend like Dave because like on who wrote that, Just you just call your Dave. Call and, your Dave. He, yeah, well, because here's, I started, I'm talking to him. I think it was after he came on your show. And I'm telling him what I'm working on. And he says, hey, I've got to give the speech. You got anything that you're working on? So I start telling him about Boyd. And before I'm done with my sentence, he brings up the cover of the book. And I'm like going, oh, yeah, yeah. of course you've read it. Yeah. <laughs> you probably helped write it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, catch it. Because crayons are good for you, Michael Snodgrass says, and he likes the taste, especially the red ones. Spot on. <laughs> That's why he is the aggressivefirefighter.com. Uh, it's been awesome tonight from Hannah Elliott. Thank you, Hannah, for the great question. Uh, Doug Michalski said, excellent discussion. Thank you. And Gigi Galasso said, soaked up some good talk. Chief, uh, from Thanks. everybody that was viewing, I know you can't see the comments, so that's why I'm reading them to you, but from everybody that was viewing, it has been an unbelievably good scrap. I had a blast. I think they had Which a blast. Um, the thing is, is I don't. I didn't even get to, like I told you before we started, there's a whole bunch of generic type questions I wanted to ask you. And this was great. So, all right, man, you got me in the geek zone, and so my finger spits and kafugel, man. Off we went, dude. <laughs> I call it the Peter you got Parker. Me talking German, you know. Fair enough. <laughs> um, thank you, Chief Walker, for being the guest on number fifty-four of the weekly scrap. To everybody who joined in live, thank you so much. Thank you for the questions. Thank you for the comments. I hope the tone stays silent unless it is burning. And stay safe out there. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Weekly Scrap. Please subscribe and please share. We'll see you at the next episode.